You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Psalm 22. Wow. Uh, You don't get too many as intense psalms as Psalm 22. If I were to situate this psalm, and I think we can do it in several ways, if we do it textually, I think it's important to see Psalm 22, 23, and 24 together. Sometime when you have an opportunity, read through Psalm 22, 23, and 24. You'll certainly discover that they're all very Christ-centered, very Christological. Uh, I said when I preached on Psalm 23 a few weeks ago that the, the sign for Psalm 22 is the cross. For 23, it's the shepherd's crook, the shepherd's staff. And Psalm 24, the crown. And you see a progression there in terms of how we relate to Christ through these three psalms, which are written, written long before Jesus walked this earth. And I see a prophetic typology. In other words, David's life as the anointed one becomes a picture of the Lord's one and only anointed one, Christ our Savior. So situating, situating Psalm 22 textually, 22, 23, and 24, liturgically, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? is the fourth word from the cross. Oftentimes during Lent, we will focus on the seven last words of Christ. The first word being, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. How fitting that uh, the first word from the cross is a prayer and a prayer for forgiveness. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The second word, a word of salvation. Today you will be with me in paradise. A word to the, the one criminal looking at Jesus, knowing that his suffering was just, the criminal's suffering was just, and Jesus's was unjust, speaks to Christ, and Christ responds, Today you will be with me in paradise. A word of salvation. The third word, a word of affection. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. A word to John about Mary, his mother, even there on the cross, uh, concerned for his family. And then the fourth word, again, the second prayer in the seven words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's followed by the word of his physical extremity, I thirst. The sixth word, it is finished, which also factors into Psalm 22. And the seventh word, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. So if I'm situating Psalm 22 liturgically, I think of those seven last words of Christ. And then if I think of today and Psalm 22, uh, this certainly has been a very intense summer. I think of the, uh, the pandemic first off, and the continuing suffering from that, which is now a protracted suffering we're living with 
this suffering over an extended period of time. I think of it also in terms of having just come from uh, California, the drought and the fires, and then today the, the floods and the storms. And then the of Haiti and suffering a second earthquake, a devastating earthquake, more than 2,000 and the number continues to rise. And then of course you think of Afghanistan and uh, the catastrophe that's happening there. Uh, I really don't fault, uh, this is an aside, the administration, but um, it's just so desperate there. And we never hear, uh, you know, about the Christians that um, you know that it's a capital punishment to convert from Islam to Christianity. And Christians are dying daily in Afghanistan at the hands of the Taliban because of their conversion to Christ. So these are really desperate times on all these levels, but the most important for in looking at the psalm and understanding it in the light of all of these other situations, I think is to see it theologically. David Mensah, my friend in Ghana, and probably some of the ministry highlights for Virginia and myself have been uh, the four visits to Ghana to train pastors. and. Uh, David and his team of Ghanaians move into a predominantly Muslim region and help villages with education, with medicine. They set up clinics, agriculture. They set up uh, crops that will help for food security and sustain their physical life. And they'll do all of that. And David has had the habit of saying, after they're well-established on this humanitarian front, he will say in a gathering of the village, he'll say, you know, we've, we've given you a lot. And we look at the things that uh, have worked out so well, but we've saved the best for last. And in that occasion, he will proclaim the gospel. And his analogy is, we've given you, uh, we've given you plants and vegetables, but we've said, we haven't given you the meat. And the meat that uh, inspires all of our work on your behalf is the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's critical in Psalm 22, boy, and I'm spending a long time introducing it, I realize, uh, is the fact that, uh, and it ties in so well with John 6, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have no life in you. And Peter's response uh, when Jesus said to the disciples, uh, do you want to leave as well? Because people were so turned off by that. Uh, many of the disciples were turned off by that. And Peter says in response to, to Jesus, where else do we have to go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to believe that you are the Holy One of God. This is really all about Jesus. And the apostles uh, would begin here. I don't know if all of our biblical scholars would, because there's a kind of a, it's a strong emphasis. You've got to take it on its first horizon, its uh, first way of interpretation uh, in the historical grammatical method. But 
I'm going to skip that uh, because that gets drawn in as we go. But the apostolic interpretation would be for sure to see it from the beginning in the light of Jesus. And it's not just, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, that applies to Jesus in this psalm, as you will see. But the whole psalm resonates with the life of Christ. So in a way, it's typology gone wild in the light of the Holy Spirit, bringing about a prophecy of our Lord. It's divided into basically three ten-verse sections. Important, I think, to get the, the flow of this psalm. So the first ten verses, let me read. This is God's word. Let's listen carefully. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Now, catch this. The tone of lament has been powerful in the first two verses. But then in verse 3, it's not just complaint. It's not just lament. There's a tension within the psalmist. Yet, yet, you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. And you, our ancestors, put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. So what's the psalmist doing? The psalmist is transparently issuing his complaint. Why have you forsaken me? Why aren't you answering? I'm crying out day and night and I'm hearing nothing from you. But then I get a dialogue with himself and you are your principal dialoguer. You know that. Nobody talks to you as much as you do. And the psalmist says, yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. So he takes his world and puts it into the large world of God's work and God's saving and God's salvation. That's a spiritual discipline. One that we're all, I think, encouraged in the Psalms to cultivate because it doesn't come natural. This isn't something that automatically happens even with being in the Spirit. I think the Spirit guides us into the discipline. Now back to the complaint, verse 6. But I'm a worm, not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Can't you picture an Afghan praying that now? An Afghan word for word being able to identify with that section in Psalm 22. But again, the complaints given, I feel like a worm. Everybody is against me. But then the rejoiner to that, verse 9, yet... Yet you brought me out of the womb. I mean, you might think uh, 
and this doesn't make a lot of sense, but worm and womb. Worm captures the essence of that, those verses pre- preceding, but then the womb, yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you. Even at my mother's breast, from birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Now, that's the fourth, my God. And that's the psalmist giving us an inclusio, a way of ending that first stanza of the ten verses. My God, my God, my God, and then ends, but you are my God. So the crying of anguish is yet responded to with an adherence. It was Matthew Henry, the 17th century Presbyterian, who took his congregation through the Psalms five times in his 30-plus year ministry. Every Thursday, every Thursday, during his whole pastoral tenure, for three decades, he preached on the Psalms to whoever would show up. Matthew Henry. And he says, when we want the faith of assurance, we must live by the faith of adherence. When we want the faith of assurance, we must live by the faith of adherence. So by faith we adhere. And as one develops that discipline and understanding and dependence, one has and cultivates the faith of assurance. Uh, last few weeks I uh, read a, a book entitled Bring Back Our Girls. It's written by two Wall Street Journal reporters who specialize in West Africa, Joe Parkinson and Drew Henshaw. Not necessarily professing Christians from what I gathered in the book, But they set out those 300 girls that were uh, abducted by Boko Haram in northeastern Nigeria in 2014 and lived for more than uh, two and a half years under the Boko Haram regime with them constantly wanting them to uh, renounce Christ and submit to being married to one of the Islamist militants. And they set out not in any way to verify a Christian testimony, but they had serious interviews with 20 of the girls post their release in 2016. Uh, By the way, thousands have died in uh, northern Nigeria at the hands of Islamist radicals. They set out to understand why these girls remain so resilient. Uh, Teenagers, high school students. And particularly Naomi was a person that they focused on because Naomi kept a journal. She had hidden her journal. She, She never took her school clothes off and was covered with the uh, with the dress that the radicals gave her but she kept her dress on cloaked herself uh, with their and kept a Bible her notebooks her journal all hidden and tucked away and so she had it's in writing her daily account of this experience and uh, 
I'm just taken back. You know, we make a lot of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and, and well, we should. Wonderful theologian, died in the 40s, the hands of Nazi Germany, a martyr for his faith in Christ. But I often probably don't mentally think, emotionally think, of teenage girls who at the point of a gun will say, go ahead, kill me. I'm not renouncing Christ, and I'm not marrying a militant. Do it. And the courage and character and dependence. Uh, the reason I, I brought them in was uh, because one of their uh, prayers was from Psalm 22, verse 2. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, I find no rest. And Parkinson and Henshaw concluded that Christ had given these girls two things, their identity and their hope. And with that, they had a resilience to withstand all sorts of uh, privations and persecutions. Jesus' words from the cross... Uh, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, there's many in Scripture that experienced God-forsakenness or felt that they were experiencing God-forsakenness. We think of Job. We think of Abraham on Mount Moriah. We think of David. But I would suggest to you that the scripture that reports those accounts of desperation often would indicate to us that God was paying particular attention to their faithfulness in the midst of the pressure. They were far from being God forsaken. They were being held up as an example of faithfulness in the midst of dire persecution. But, and this is kind of theologically controversial, <laughs> it seems. I, I don't think, it, it isn't in my mind, but it seems to be. I think Jesus was truly God-forsaken on the cross, which is the great paradox, because his fellowship with the Father was absolute, and his righteousness and justice were perfect, and of all people, then, to experience the total, absolute God-forsakenness. So the question is, you know, why did he do that? Why, is, why would I say that he was truly God-forsaken? And I just the way I do think about Christ, I don't divide him up into, this is the human category, and that's the divine category. And so I'm going to resolve this by the human category felt God-forsaken, but the divine category didn't. I see Jesus, and we confess this in our Chalcedonian Creed, our Nicene Creed, fully God, fully man, one integrated, completely whole person. And uh, he was God-forsaken, in that moment on the cross because of our sin that he bore upon himself. That's the meat of the gospel. That's the reason why anything good that comes out of us finds its ground and its purpose and its power. The apostles, I think, would agree 
God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 And again, the Apostle Paul in Romans 4, verse 25, He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. And the Apostle Peter, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By His wounds we have been healed. Obviously, taking from Isaiah 53. So this would mark the lowest depths of grief that Jesus experienced on our behalf to provide for our righteousness. Those are the first ten verses. The second set begins in verse 11. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. He's, he describes here being surrounded, encircled by the enemy. I'm going to kind of go through this, and what you will find as you go through this is how the Gospel writers pulled from this a description of the crucifixion and what Jesus was experiencing. Surrounded by bulls, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions that tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it's melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Who's doing the laying? From what we've just said, God is laying him in the dust of death for us. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me, they pierce my hands and my feet, all my bones are on display, people stare and gloat over me, they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But again, this juxtaposition of dire strait, but you, Lord, verse 19, do not be far from me. You are my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. Again, I can picture Afghan believers praying this this morning and it feel, feeling like word-for-word -word correspondence. Encircled by the enemies, And there's scripture in the Gospels that we could point to in, in Matthew 27 and Mark 15, but I think that those probably, the passage, also, you know, you, it echoes with your Gospel readings. But I want to get to the third section, which I think is the most neglected section. I think we've got the lament down, and I hope we've got this idea of complaint and confidence in juxtaposition. But then it all changes. The whole mood changes. Everything changes. And while it doesn't describe the resurrection per se, it certainly describes the impact of the resurrection. 
And historically, this verse 22 and following has been known as the fifth gospel. You're going to see, we see the life, we see the death, and we see the resurrection of Jesus Christ. No wonder he said on the road to Emmaus to the two disciples, didn't you realize that all the law and the prophets and the Psalms had to become had to come to truth. Verse 22. I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. you and that's quoted in Hebrews 2, verse 10 and 12, by the way. I'll declare your name. So this is the declaration of Jesus again in the upper room, but this time having been raised from the dead. Again, this is, this is Pentecost and the declaration of the gospel uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, this is Jesus giving the great commission, go and make disciples of all people, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'll declare your name to my people in the assembly I will praise you the impact of the risen Lord you who fear the Lord praise him all you descendants of Jacob now you are a descendant of Jacob you do know Uh, you are a descendant of Jacob I am a descendant of Jacob and these are the descendants now that will honor him revere him all you descendants of Israel for he is not despised For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He's not hidden his face from him, but he's listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied, and those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. Echoes of the book of Revelation, echoes of Philippians 2, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All will go down to the dust, will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, He has done it. He's done it. It makes me think of, you know, the word from the cross, the sixth word, it is finished. And he has done it is a direct quote quoted from uh, Psalm 22 by the Apostle John in Revelation 16, 17, and 21, 16. He's done it. He's done it. It's finished. And we live in the aftermath of that accomplishment And our desire would be in the Spirit to live in the light of that accomplishment with a sense of assurance and adherence as we work and live as Christ followers. You know, we live in a seriously unserious world. And uh, I don't think the Lord is using any of these things that are happening in our history right now as so much a way of judgment, but they certainly ought to be interpreted as a wake-up call. We cannot afford our unseriousness. God has worked in order to redeem us. History is serious. 
eternity is serious. And uh, while probably nobody really likes an overly serious person, I would call you to seriousness in Christ um, for the sake of uh, all those who know you and work with you, live with you. Let's pray. Lord God, thanks for the song. Thanks for teaching us through your word. I pray for my sisters and brothers in Christ for faithfulness, uh, for an enjoyment of the salvation that you have provided, for a sense that's communicated here with this fifth gospel emphasis. Thank you, Lord, for your life, death, and resurrection. May you be glorified. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray together. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.